September 1st of 2009, we signed a lease on that 7th Street place. And uh, he just casually dropped to me, you know, I think people really think most about lobster and lobster rolls in the warmer weather. And we barely have any money at all. So we need to get this thing open October 1st. And it was like, oh, okay. So we have 30 days to go from signing a lease to fully opening and staffing and permitting and stocking a restaurant. Hello, this is the Idea to Start Up podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. I'm Brian Scordato, and today we've got an amazing interview with one of the founders of Luke's Lobster, Ben Conniff. Luke's makes the best lobster rolls I have ever had. I've been eating them in New York City for over a decade. Ben talks through tactics that allowed two co-founders who met on Craigslist with no restaurant experience between them to build a company with dozens of locations worldwide. Ben's a storyteller at heart, and he crushes this interview. It's a great balance of story and tactics, and there should be tons of takeaways for early-stage founders, particularly those interested in sustainability. Now, I'm going to warn you, there are traffic sounds. There are sirens. This is a true New York City experience. It doesn't take away from the podcast, but I did want to mention it. We're learning on the job here, and now we've got two mics, so this sort of thing won't happen again. We also aren't going to record in my apartment anymore. Once again, we've got a copy of the transcript in the show notes and more info at gettacklebox.com. Just click on the button that says podcasts. If you're enjoying Idea to Startup, subscribe, rate, and leave us a comment. If you want to chat, shoot me an email at brian at gettacklebox.com. Enjoy. So for people who don't know, I guess a good place to start is what is Luke's Foster? That's a great question. <laughs> Luke's Lobster is a main bread, main style lobster shack. So we exist mostly in bigger cities around the U.S. and also in Japan and Taiwan. But we have a very limited menu. We really the star of our show is the main style lobster roll, which is put simply the world's best lobster meat in a toasted bun with very little else on it. A tiny bit of mayonnaise, a tiny bit of lemon butter and a tiny bit of a, of a seasoning mixture. But really the lobster is the star of the show. And then we kind of surround that menu item with a crab roll, a shrimp roll, some classic chowders, a clam chowder, lobster bisque, uh, and a salad and a, and a dessert. But but it really is a it's in its current iteration is a very short menu that really focuses on the world's best lobster. Awesome, and I can attest that it is so delicious. And the reason I reached out to you nine years ago was I was working on a previous startup, and we wanted to get people excited about that startup. So I wanted to give them free or cheap Luke's lobster rolls because I thought I'd be able to borrow some of that, that goodness. So uh, I have a bunch of questions, but I think a cool place to start is just the origin story of like how, how this got going and how such a simple idea of a lobster roll now has uh, become global. Yeah. So my partner is Luke. Luke is a real person and he is a third generation lobsterman. So he's, he's from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And when he was growing up, his father was a lobster fisherman and then a lobster dealer, and then actually the first processor of lobster in Maine. So what that means is rather than trying to sell live lobster all over the country, he was taking live lobster at its best and strongest moment, right when it comes out of the water and cooking it and then 
basically locking in the quality of that lobster at that stage and selling these value-added products, whether it was, you know, cooked lobster knuckle and claw meat, or it was raw frozen lobster tails, uh, and a bunch of other products that the running theme is you take the lobster at its best and you make the product there rather than shipping live lobster around the country, around the world, and have it consume its own fats and proteins as it's out of its natural habitat. So Luke grew up, started lobstering as a kid, learned to do it, went through the kind of apprenticeship program uh, called Sternman for an existing lobsterman, and then built his own skiff and shop class and actually started lobstering in high school and, and into college in the summers. But halfway through college, his parents said, you know what, we're not paying you, we're not paying for you to go to college to be a lobsterman forever. So you're going to have to find something else, something else to do next summer if we're going to keep you in college. So that's how we sort of got into the finance world, developed an interest in it, did some internships and wound up out of college in 2007 at a banking job in New York. It was a good job, but he didn't have a ton of passion for it ultimately. And he found that he really missed that traditional main style lobster roll and that connection to his home industry. So he sort of searched around all over New York City for a great lobster roll that you know, was affordable and, and resonated with his experience in Maine. And there just wasn't one. Every lobster roll served here was extremely expensive in a white tablecloth environment. And the lobster was covered in mayonnaise and chives and celery and all, all this filler. So he looked at his dad's business model, saw that there was a way to get better lobster meat than anybody else was serving down to the city through that connection for less money than others were charging. And to build out, you know, a truly casual, authentic main style lobster shack, which, you know, which didn't have the frills that ring up the bill in, uh, you know, in your white tablecloth settings. So he built that business model while he was sitting at his desk. And basically he had, you know, maybe a little over $15,000 that he saved up from bonuses at his job. And, you know, his dad basically matched that amount of money. None of us knew until a few years later, his dad told us that he'd actually pulled that from his 401k. Oh. Um, so we had just over $30,000. There was no way he could quit that job and just jump into this very speculative thing. So he knew he needed a partner. And for some reason, he decided that he would put that on Craigslist <laughs> to find that partner. I had graduated from college, didn't really know what I wanted to do. My dad's a writer. I thought maybe that was a skill that I could that I could make something out of. And so I'd been working editorial internships and I'd been freelance writing and kind of trying to make it in that world. And I'd focus more and more on food writing because that was what I found I was most passionate about. But ultimately, after two years, sitting at home alone on my computer wasn't what was motivating for me. I loved cooking and I missed being part of a team and seeing people every day and interacting with with, with my friends and with, and with strangers too. And I just realized my love of food, my love of people meant that, you know, the service industry was something that I should really consider. So I was cruising Craigslist for like the most entry level restaurant jobs. Frankly, I, I couldn't even get a response to any of the jobs I applied for that didn't have experience. And then I find this guy, he's just, just posted this. I, you know, I, I'm from Maine and, I, and I'm, I have a background in lobster and I really want to start a Maine lobster shack and I need a partner to help out. And I was like this, I mean, first of all, the fact that this guy's pushing this on Craigslist <laughs> means like, I don't I mean, maybe I have one screw loose at least. Um, 
And also, like, I have no experience. So there's no way I'm even going to hear back. But <laughs> I, I sent an email anyway. I just said, look, I visited Maine a lot as a kid. I specifically visited lobster docks and, like, hung out there and watched lobstermen go in and out. And it's, just, it's an industry that I've always been in love with and a food I've always been in love with. And the rest of it I can figure out. And I heard back within less than a day. Whoa. And we met up, like, two days after that. And two days after that, he flew me to Maine to meet his family and to see his dad's business and basically for them to get a read on, you know, whether I'd be the right person to to start this business with. And uh, they're all, I'd like to think, good judges of character. (laughs) Um, So, you know, within a week of meeting, it was was a done deal. We were going for it. We were already, you know, starting to look at leases on some spaces that he had sort of picked out as as possible first locations and this was mid-august of 2009 so september 1st of 2009 we signed a lease on that seventh street place and uh, he just casually dropped to me you know i think people really think most about lobster and lobster rolls in the warmer weather and we barely have any money at all so we need to get this thing open october 1st and it was like oh okay so we have 30 days to go from signing a lease to fully opening and staffing and permitting and stocking a restaurant. And did you each have, you still each had your jobs at this point or no? I didn't have a job. You know, I had been freelance writing. Oh, yeah. So I just, I pretty much dropped that as cool. soon as I signed up with Luke's. Um, you know, I had some lingering like pieces out there that I needed to edit and, and stuff like that, that I kind of chipped away at in my like one minute per week of free time. <laughs> but I was I was all in on this and immediately went from like my typical 45 hour a week of work as a freelancer to 110 um, just like overnight. And I would never considered ever working that much in my life. I honestly like never thought of being a business person, never thought of I was kind of like, you know, I was a freelancer, like kind of a creative person, not exactly a business guy at all. So but something about this project resonated so strong with me that like it wasn't even a question that i immediately dove in and spent every waking breathing moment on it and like i had just never felt more fulfilled than that 30 days we have a goal we have no choice but to hit it and we just have to figure out how to do it no matter what i know you said it was just something about the opportunity but i'm so curious as to what it what it was can you was it like Luke and the thought of what you could build or was it the product itself or was there some validation from customers or I mean I was Luke and I maybe had talked once about the possibility that if this went well there could be more Hmm. I was not at all optimistic on that front I thought that this was going to be a side project for Luke and if I was lucky it was going to pay my rent but it was going to be something I was passionate about Um, and to me it was it was, it was how much I love lobster and how much I knew. And then Luke taught me about how sustainable and wonderful and kind of individual entrepreneurial the lobster industry is mm. and what, you know, what the industry meant to so many small time fishermen and just the passion Luke had for the business, the history he had with his family in the business. You know, it all just resonated with me that this wasn't, this wasn't somebody who just wanted to start a startup and they just reeled through a bunch of ideas until they found one that maybe would stick. This was like, 
a lifetime and, and generations of, of love for this industry that was motivating this. And, you know, me being able to feed off that and own a part of that and take just full responsibility at that, at that time while Luke had his job for birthing this thing, even if it just ended up being one location forever, it's something about taking ownership that way that I'd never gotten to do before. Uh, just, just floored me. Wow. I'm like kind of floored as well. So tell me about that month and how you were prioritizing. So Luke had history with the sourcing side, but had anyone in Luke's family ever built a restaurant before? Or was restaurant new? Restaurant was new. Uh, restaurant was new to all of us. I mean, I'd worked in a donut shop before, you know, frosting the donuts and pumping the jelly. And that was, <laughs> that was it. I mean, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd bust tables, but um, no, we, we really didn't know what was going on, on on that front. And we just had to imagine like, okay, what all goes into running a restaurant um, and, and building one. And so it, there was just, there was so much Googling and so many literally just walking next door to Caracas and, and asking Maribel, our, our neighbor for advice on like what it meant to own a restaurant. <laughs> and she was wonderful. And Sarah Jenkins at Porchetta was helpful. And, you know, it's a great little neighborhood there. So it's on 7th and 1st? Yeah, 7th, right between 1st and A. And, you know, there was just, okay, I, I know that I'm going to need a building permit. So I'm just going to go to the Department of Buildings and wander around until either they throw me out or I figure out how to get a building permit. And I know I'm going to need a, you know, a health permit and a health inspection. So same deal. Just Google where the Department of Health is and just go. <laughs> and yeah, obviously I had a, you know, some, some background in like renovating apartments, uh, just painting kind of light work like that. And, and so did Luke and some of his friends. So we just did everything ourselves in that front. Luke's uncle came down and helped us with the finer carpentry of just the bar counter, basically everything else we just kind of you know, painted this little shoebox space and rolled in refrigerators. And you had a, an artist friend of Luke's brother who came and did a mural for us, which was really cool. So it just, it wasn't so much that I was good at prioritizing. It was just that I just did everything I possibly could all the time and just like ran around like crazy. And there was no, you know, if I wasn't, if I wasn't doing something with my hands then I was on the phone all the time. And the, you know, the staffing part of it too, totally new to me. So just again, like turning right back to Craigslist and interviewing tons and tons and tons of, of people. And I think just being, going with my gut on how, you know, the feel that I got from these people and, you know, whether they could convince me that they would, they would be excited and committed to, to be a part of this team, you know, and some great people that I just, that I didn't hire because I was just extremely extremely selective about putting together a team that I thought would would jive well, uh, work together well, and appreciate, you know, the, the idea of being instrumental to a completely new thing. So what struck me, I, I remember I went to that Lobster Shack because I had friends who lived on 7. I remember I went there like early on. And I remember thinking, this has a strong brand. Like there's like a very consistent brand throughout and I'm wondering how you cultivated that, if you, if it was purposeful or like how you thought about that first. Yeah. Absolutely. To me, you know, my partnership with Luke, he's, he's a, he's great with numbers and he's great with mechanical aspects of the uh, business and, uh, and the way the lobster industry works and, and with relationships, I've, you know, I've always had the, the role of being more on the creative side 
and more of you know, the story, the brand. And to me, you know, we this brand grew out of a reaction to there not being any authentic kind of seaside true main shack experience in New York. And so authenticity was from a brand perspective, a cornerstone for me and, and rooting that in Luke's own story and his own history growing up in the industry and thinking about where he went to eat lobster rolls when he was a kid and where I went to eat lobster rolls when I was a kid and making sure that everything that we did here in New York was true to that. And, and we've said for going on 10 years now is if you're in the streets of New York City and you open the door and you walk into a Luke's, it's almost as though like the air should change and you feel like you are sitting on a dock and you're in a rural place, like a quiet place, a slower place where you've completely left the surrounding hustle and bustle. You know, everything we tried to do aesthetically or for how we talked about the experience of being at Luke's was grounded in, in the authenticity to the experience that we knew from childhood. So you were, you were a storyteller and you came to Luke's and you said, all right, let's just continue to tell stories here and have a very specific, clear brand. I think that that went through to product selection. I always thought it was interesting when I went in and you'd look at like the drinks and like, it seemed like every item on the menu was always very purposeful and there weren't just like the thing with all the soft drinks, like it was specific, like root beer and a few other items. I'm curious about those decisions for what your early product selection would be. So we knew the one product we were going to have was an authentic lobster roll and something that really spoke to, you know, to the main roots of the company. And I guess that's a, that's going to end up being a pun, but <laughs> it wasn't intended. So, you know, filling out the rest of the menu, it was going to be short, it was going to be sweet, and we we're only going to serve things that we could do better than anybody else. Looking at the drink selection, even if for the longest time, on the coast of Maine, if you went to a lobster shack, you're probably going to get a Coke. You know, we thought, but what, what would really speak today to, to Maine even better? And, you know, we found this Maine root soda brand, which was uh, a fledgling brand back then, only a few years older than us, but the quality of the root beer they made specifically, but then also the, the ginger brew, which is something that, you know, a, a really good spicy ginger beer is something that Mainers really appreciate. And, you know, a, a cola that's made with fair trade organic sugar and, you know, things like that. We're talking about sustainable lobster, sustainable fishing, and the opportunity to bring a product that was from Maine and that was sustainable and that aligned with our values. And they sort of spoke in the same language that our food was speaking it, it just immediately appealed to me yes we're gonna to have to charge a little bit more for this drink but it's going to align so much better with everything else that we're doing uh, and that's sort of how we how we made each of those decisions cool um so let's go back to i'm really interested in this first month so did you get did you make it by october one and then what happened <laughs> yeah we did uh it was it was kind of unbelievable, but we, we did pull it all together. We did get not a big enough team as it turned out for how busy we were, but a, an amazing team that stuck with us for a long time. Some of them are still with us today. And, you know, we had to like the requisite like pre-inspection a couple of days before and had no idea. And we had, again, we had restaurant friends in the neighborhood come by and walk through and say, here's what health inspector might point out over here. 
here's a hole that you need to patch and, and, and things like that. And, you know, we just worked through the night uh, for, for the days before that inspection. But once we passed that inspection, it was like, okay, this is real. We were actually going to open on October 1st. You know, meanwhile, built the press release, was distributing that to all my old media contacts, doing interviews at Tasting Table and, and Grub Street and Eater. You know, all those were, were still early days for all of those companies, too. I mean, we were maybe one of the first things that Infatuation wrote about because yeah. they started right around the same time we did. It was called Immaculate Infatuation <laughs> back then. And so, you know, there's this whole... This whole world of, of kind of like food obsession was was in its early early heyday that time. So being able to get the word out about this guy and his story, his background from Maine, and how that was bringing authenticity to the food that he was going to bring to the East Village, just it resonated so well that you know we had a line down the street around the block on the first day. And, you know, when I could take a break, I'm calling Luke's dad saying, how quickly can we get more lobster down here? Can you go somewhere and buy more buns? Because you can't get a main style, you know, split top bun in New York City. Probably can now, but you definitely couldn't then. So we had to get at least across the line into somewhere in Connecticut to get that type of bun. But it just, yeah, it was just, it was so much busier than we had anticipated. Typically, you think about a restaurant being like, okay, no one's going to know we exist for a few months. And we're going to slowly build word of mouth and maybe eventually we'll be able to get an article written about us and that'll bring people in. And we had the New York Times in there reviewing us the, the second week we were open. And it just, it just jumped off so quickly. And, you know, we were scrambling to, to meet the demand, but we had three products and one product that made up at that point, probably over 80% of our sales. And the one thing we knew how to do was make that thing perfectly. We had no to-go packaging on our first day because I just didn't think of that. <laughs> so it was complete insanity. And it was like nothing but working all the time. I just didn't see friends unless I lived with them for basically the first two years of living fell off the face of the earth but you know every day there was another thing that was screwed up the day before that wasn't screwed up <laughs> that day and and you know each day you could you were you were mainly just making and serving lobster rolls but you'd find enough time to make one or two improvements so that the next day was smoother and the experience for the guests was a little bit better each day and you know luckily just the quality of the food and how friendly we were to people was enough to get people coming back again and again and bringing friends and telling their friends. And so there was no real slowdown in that initial uh, burst of energy. So what do you think, or you might know, what were people telling friends about? Like, what was like the soundbite that they would say about Luke's that got people to come? Yeah. You know, before anyone had tried it, it was read this cool story about this, you know, the, the economy had just tanked and everybody blamed the finance industry. And so it's just a great story about a guy who's, who's like, ditching his finance career and just putting it all into a, into a restaurant business. And he's from Maine and, and he's got this connection to the best lobster you can get. And, and then once people started eating it, it was like, Oh my God, I had this place I had the best lobster roll. So it still is predominantly the, like the sound bite that people give is like, Oh, they have the best lobster rolls and they're, and they're from Maine. And usually that's like, that's the first proof point. Like they got the best lobster rolls and they're from Maine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where we want people to go from there is they're from Maine. They own their business every step from the lobster at the docks all the way through to the plate. And they know from 
generations of experience exactly how to handle and cook and pack and prepare this food so that it could not be better. We have this whole other mission of sustainability and, and stakeholder theory and taking care of fishermen and, and all that. But in order to get people in the door and get the business and the sales that we need to actually do all that other stuff, the way in is always through the quality of the food and then the proof point of why it is that quality. It's really interesting. And it, I remember when I, the first time I went, so my mom's obsessed with lobster rolls. Her and I have had like a mother son thing with them forever. And I think, she, I think it was that initial New York times article that she sent to me. And what we talked about was something that I had always had this held belief that like a lobster sitting in a tank in the front of a restaurant meant fresh lobster. And she pointed out that that was not the case at all. That like the way that Luke's gets their lobsters so fresh as they cook them immediately after they come out. And I remember thinking like, that's really interesting. That's completely counterintuitive to how I would think about it. But then it makes sense. And I tried it. And that, then once I tried it, I remember thinking this is incredible. Something I want to bring up too. So like you mentioned that it's, it was less expensive than like a higher end lobster roll at a restaurant. But I remember for like, whatever I was, 25 year old Brian, it was a little bit of, it was like a little expensive for me. It was 17 bucks. So I'm, I'm interested in that price point and where, who those initial customers were. And was this like a stretch for them or how they think about it? Yeah. We think about that all the time because we want the biggest tent we possibly can. Of course, we want it as wide a guest base coming in as we can get. And so we could have come in, we could have done a market analysis and said, the average cost of a lobster roll in New York is $25. So we could price it at 22 and undercut all those other people and we'll win. But the fact is the average person in New York couldn't afford the average lobster roll in New York at 25. They couldn't afford 22. And the average person in New York couldn't afford the 14 where we were when we started. But a lot more people could afford 14 than 22. And what we wanted to do was, was basically say, with the economy tanking, there'd been a, a big loss in demand for lobster because uh, most people ate lobster at these super high end restaurants where they were like, you know, it was, a, it was a closing dinner for their banking deal or it was like their 10th anniversary and they were really splurging. That was how people thought about lobster. When the economy went, there were a lot fewer of those splurge meals. But for us, you know, it, it wasn't this like once in a lifetime splurge on the docks of Maine. It, it, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't cheap, but you know, it was something that could be approachable for more of an everyday celebration. So that was what we wanted to achieve. And we wanted to do it because we, we wanted to grow demand for this product. And we knew these fishermen were out there following sustainable management techniques that made it much more difficult and expensive for them to do their jobs. And they were hidden situations where they didn't, they didn't have a market for the lobster that they could catch. So we wanted as many people as possible eating lobster rolls. And for us, that meant taking a much smaller percent profit margin on the food than a typical restaurant and hope that people would appreciate that enough that we would do the volume to make up for that lower margin. And then, you know, save, save on rent by being in a tiny space, save on labor by having a process that only required a couple people as opposed to a white tablecloth restaurant, which you need a, a whole back house staff, a whole front of house staff, and just find everywhere else where we could do it ourselves for less money to save up 
and then be able to charge as little as possible for the lobster roll. So you, you open up this first restaurant, things are going great or very, very busy. How do you start thinking about growth then? And how long did it take to get to the point where it's like, this is something that we can start to either productize or franchise or however you think about it? Yeah, I think we wanted to see, is this going to be just going to be a flash in the pan one week of awesomeness or is this going to sustain? And, you know, a responsible person would have said, okay, let's give it two years and then, and then see how it's going. We gave it like three months. <laughs> um, and when it was still doing well in December, you know, outside of what people would classically think of as the strong season for a, for a lobster shack, Luke said, I think we're ready to expand. And I said, Luke, we're still like storing cash under your mattress because we haven't even had the time to install a safe in the restaurant yet. What do you mean we're ready to expand? <laughs> uh, and he said, no, we did, the demand is, is heavy right now. And if we can't lean into that and we can't keep the momentum that we have as a brand, then, you know, we might, we might miss our chance. And I don't even know that I actually agreed, but I said, okay. <laughs> but the one thing that he did say was if we sign a second lease, I quit my job. Uh, oh, so he hadn't quit yet? No. Wow. He did not quit. He didn't quit until we signed that second lease. That's when he put in his notice at work. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm still working 100, 110 hours a week. I still see so much room for improvement in this business. How can we, how can we grow? And he convinced me that the timing was necessary to not just kind of fade out of the public conversation and that we had a great team and that we could be tolerant of a certain number of mistakes and a certain number of imperfections so long as we were true to the ideals of having the highest quality product and you know serving the ingredients that we believed in and, and taking care of people so we decided to go start looking and and you know the upper east side was our, our next you know we're gonna, we're gonna reach a totally different group of people up there but another group of people who really care about lobster and who understand kind of that coastal feel from, from trips that, that folks take and, and, and who, who are really lacking an approachable, casual restaurant for great food. A lot of these younger companies now have gone to the Upper East Side and have been successful there. But back then, it was really only really nice restaurants in the area. Hmm. So we went out and we found that space. And there was, I mean, there was a lot of heartache with uh, we promoted a great person to oversee that first shack while we folks in the second, but frankly, we, we didn't give her enough, you know, enough support. And it was very difficult for her to, to grow into that role. None of our people were any more experienced than we were. They were just hardworking and smart and, and wanting to get it done. Learning to manage from outside the four walls of the restaurant was very difficult, but we just felt back on the fact that like, our relationships with our team were so strong and their belief in us and in the company and what we were doing was so strong that we survived a lot of bad management decisions and not really knowing what we were doing just because we had great people. And ultimately we all loved each other enough to, to forgive a lot of screw ups. <laughs> <laughs> and you had an exceptional product. Yeah. That's yeah. And from a guest perspective that always got us through, any mishaps. I think that that growth is really interesting. So we've got, um, as I mentioned, we'll have a lot of, a lot of like early stage founders listening to this and a lot of folks get to a point where it's time to like hire your first person. And I guess in, in your case, you had 
probably two different types of hires. You had uh, more, more so staff who would be running the restaurant or interfacing with your customers who are incredibly important and then more strategic higher level hires. When did you decide it was time to hire someone and what were you looking for in that person? That's a good question. I mean, there's, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple different, I would say key outside hires along the way that we've made. The first position that was ever created at Luke's outside of just working in a restaurant was a promotion of a girl named Abby from working on the line to running quote unquote HR for us, which at the time basically meant job posting, interviewing and hiring because we needed to continue to, to do that both for the existing location and the new location. And we're so focused elsewhere. And her only qualification for that job was that everybody liked her. <laughs> uh, she was super nice and caring. And I thought, okay, well, that's like the right attitude to have for HR. So that was the first corporate job that we had. She still worked probably four plus shifts a week wow. in, the, in the restaurant, but then also carved out time to do this other stuff too. Uh, and then the first outside hire of that sort was, uh, was a girl named Nina. She was working in restaurant operations at the time, but really had a, had a strong interest in finance. And she came in to basically clean up our bookkeeping, which had been on, basically Luke would create an Excel spreadsheet with some various categories of spending, print it out, bring it to me, and I would fill it out with pencil and paper <laughs> when I bought stuff. Like that was our means of accounting. And then, you know, I would write in what our sales were each day. <laughs> uh, so, you know, things like bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. Like having an accounting system, there's no way, even with Luke's experience and knowledge of numbers, there was no way either of us would have had the time to like build out QuickBooks system or now, you know, restaurant 365, but at the time just like very basic QuickBooks. So bringing Nina on to immerse herself in the accounting side of what we were doing and make sure that we didn't just get so excited about how much business we were doing that we lost all our money because we weren't tracking our expenses the right way. And we just like, things got too hectic. So that happened um, a little less than a year into existing as a business, I would say. Mm. And, and that was a game changer mm. for us just to know that there was somebody looking out for us on that front. So, you know, if we were focused on growth or we were focused on hiring or training or, or marketing, somebody would safeguard that. And then, you know, over time, bringing people into marketing positions and, and compliance and um, compliance was my sister, you know, they were everybody that we brought in on that front was, was, you know, junior or not particularly experienced in that field, but convinced us that they were, you know, they had the right head on their shoulders and they'd be able to make it happen. Some of them were promoted from within, some of them were from the outside. It was 20, 2015, I think when we finally decided, you know, we actually need somebody who's got major serious experience in this industry. You know, we were very cocky for a long time that, oh, like we actually, we're better off without experience because we're doing things our own way. And at a certain point, there are just things that are true to every business and every restaurant business and structures that you need to put in to succeed. And so we found a guy named Alan Dempsey who'd been running restaurants for a few decades and was kind enough and patient enough 
to join us and you know a couple of kids and a company full of kids that didn't really know what they were doing and we were luckily humble enough to say yeah we've been really successful so far but we have a sense that we may not be successful for too much longer without some adult help and he was just incredible at kind of formalizing training programs for us and just letting us know like this thing that you do that is great for like your the family cultural feel of your business like it's going to have to stop because it's going to create liabilities for you and and he kind of taught us to he helped us with that transition where the stuff that you do that felt like very like raw and authentic and cool like going getting completely plastered with your team uh, after work like stopping doing that you know you can see that it's just becoming corporate and being lame and square and like turning the business into something different or you can see it as if you continue to do that you know people might get hurt and it's not fair to your team and it's not ultimately good for anybody and if you're going to make a decision that if you actually care about your people and you actually love your people you're not going to show that forever by making irresponsible decisions around them you're mm-hmm. going to show that by taking a step back and, and doing what's actually better for their professional growth and their personal growth. And it's not to say we don't have beers with our teams anymore, but it is to say that we're always cognizant of what's, you know, what's safe and what's, and what's good for people now and what's a appropriate professional relationship, even if you have uh, a really fulfilling personal relationship with your, with your team as well. So we credit Alan for uh, helping us kind of mature there. I think without losing the soul of the company. Yeah. I think that's an interesting segue into some of the sustainability stuff, which I think is sort of on the side of the business we haven't talked too much about on the supplier side. So I know you're, you're a B Corp. A lot of our founders have a goal of sustainability and socially responsible actions, but at times there can be tension between trying to start up a company in a way that's most profitable so that you can continue to like grow versus that sustainability side. So I'm curious how you guys think about that and how you've been able to stay so focused on the prioritizing sustainability. Yeah. It's a constant battle, honestly, and it, and it keeps me up most nights hmm. to know that we do so many things that are environmentally and socially sustainable and that we do other things that are not environmentally sustainable at least and that we can't afford to do them and you have to accept that there are some things that you can do immediately and there are some things that you need to set as goals and try to hold yourself to so that you know if you become financially successful you will make this improvement you know if you attain this level of profitability, you will invest that profitability in doing this better. So, you know, for us, there, there are things we'll never compromise. We'll never buy, you know, an ounce of seafood from a fishery that's not sustainably managed. That was our, you know, our starting point. And I think the key is, you know, if at all possible, just, just never go backwards, right? So as you become more successful and you scale, remember to invest some of that success, not just in growing for the sake of growing, but also improve one element of your packaging to spend a little more on something that's made from post-consumer recycled materials as opposed to virgin materials. Be ready to lose that little bit of your P&L and make it up wherever else you've been successful. And as we've come through this process, 
you know, we've done that. We've we've moved away from a lot of the packaging that we you know that we didn't like, but we still have stuff that we're not proud of, and we still have disposables that I wish we didn't use. They're about as good as they can be, but like they're still disposables. But we can't afford to necessarily put dishwashers in all these places, or or frankly to like end our existing leases and take new leases on spaces that are big enough to have dishwashers or to have storage space for for you know reusable metalware. So you can't hold yourself to a standard of perfection. You can only set the baseline of what you'll never compromise and then set goals. And we're getting better at that, especially since becoming a B Corp and going through the certification because you see all the points you got for how wonderful you are. And you also see all the points that you missed. And they put a great emphasis on transparency and goal setting and trying to improve every single year. So, you know, getting in a place where, you know, I never measured my use of disposables before, but now, you know, I have a spreadsheet that tells me exactly how many, uh, how many cases and dollars and pounds of disposables I ordered last year. And, you know, I have a 25% reduction goal for this year. And maybe for next year, that can be a 50% reduction goal. And I can hold myself to that. And what's sustainable for the environment is, you know, stopping using all of it, but it just, we would lose all of our takeout business, which is 50% of our business, because so many people would be angry at us for that. And you have to remind yourself that like, I live in the bubble where I understand the effect that plastics have on the world. So when I get takeout, I ask for no utensils and I bring it home and I use my own utensils. And, and that's great for me because I'm in the bubble and not everybody's there. And you can't hate everybody that's not in the bubble because they're just, they're busy with other stuff. And it's not easy to constantly have that awareness of everything around you that, that affects the environment. So we have to, you know, accommodate our guest desires enough to stay in business and then strive to slowly make the changes and communicate with people. And four years ago, we got rid of straws and, you know, we had people that were pissed off about it and you just have that conversation. Those straws are terrible for the environment and it's, it's not that difficult to sip your soda out of the bottle. And we lost a couple of, of guests from that maybe, but you know, we also help teach people through that experience and it wasn't so bad that we lost enough guests that it ran into the ground mm. and i think you know with, with people's awareness growing more there's going to be more and more tolerance and and we're starting to get nailed on social media for people who do see the disposables and i love it as much as like i don't like them you know talking about how awful we are i love that they're saying it's bad that we have these disposable wares because it is and we do it because our, our guests demand it but like we all together as a community, that's the thing. Like your company is not just your company. It's, it's your suppliers and your team and you and your guests kind of all needing to move as one. And you can't get too far out ahead of what your guests desire or you'll lose them. So we need to, we need to bring them on together and, and they need to, you know, these few who are on social media complaining about our plastic works are great because they're helping to push us and hopefully you know, together we're all moving in the right direction. And that's, that's how this whole industry is gonna, is gonna hopefully heal itself by working with the customers to talk about those issues and, and help them get to a place where they're, they're okay with having to use their own reusable utensils someday. Hmm. What a tremendous point of view. That's like, that's really good. I appreciate that. 
I want to be cognizant of time. I think that's a cool place to close. I could ask a hundred more questions about Luke's as you scale, but I think for our customers, you've talked about a lot of the stuff that'll be relevant for them. So I have a couple of questions at the end that I think are, are kind of interesting. So let's say that you were starting, say, a taco truck now, and you were like, I'm, I'm starting this business from zero. What would your approach be knowing what you know? You know, in that, in that instance, first of all, to, for me to be starting a truck, I would say baseline, we'd have to assume that I have some very emotional and authentic connection to tacos, whether it's through the ingredients that are going in those tacos, or it's the concept of the taco itself having been, you know, a huge part of my life. Uh, frankly, as I mentioned off offline, my dog is named Taco, so maybe that would be enough for me. I'm a major lover of tacos, but my point is, whatever you're going into, it has to be your has to be your passion. There has to be a very authentic and believable reason that you are the person that needs to have this taco truck, and that a taco truck is the thing that you need to be doing. It's the thing that is going that you're going to find your mission, your fulfillment in, in order to to do it. I do believe fundamentally for lots of people, work is work and a, and a job is a job. But if you're going to start, manage, and own something in the food industry, it, it can't be that way. You can't be, it'll never be punching in and punching out. There will be no punching out ever. So you need to love it so much. Um, and you need to always be able to, to come back to that in the hardest of times. So that's sort of the baseline. And if I couldn't convince myself of that, and I couldn't imagine, you know, how hard and how bad it's going to be at times and, and know that I would want to stick through it, then I, I wouldn't do it. But then beyond that, I would say like establishing the philosophy of first, how are you sourcing your ingredients and how are you ensuring that they're going to be perfect every time? How close can you get to the source of your key ingredients to where you have so much trust in your suppliers and the people that you rely on and they have trust in you that you're going to take care of them, that you'll always know that the product that you're going to give people is pristine. Assuring that that product is going to be what you are proud of every time you open the door of that taco truck is critical. And then just putting that same amount of effort into your team and your company culture. Because, you know, if you're lucky someday, you won't need to be the one that's making and serving the tacos every minute that that truck is open. You're going to be able to have a team that believes in you and believes in your business and wants it to succeed enough that you can go start another taco truck and the people on the first one are going to make the same decisions that you would have made if you were on that truck. So that's, I mean, for us, it was product and, and team. And if you have ultimate faith that you've done right by those two things, then you're going to be able to grow. And I mean, there's certainly no guarantee of success. There's so many external factors in this business that could just absolutely uh, destroy you. <laughs> but at least you'll have done, in my mind, the two most important things to give you the best chance of succeeding. Wow. Uh, great answer. And I think that's a cool place to end. This was super, super awesome. I've got pages of notes. Um, really helpful. I really appreciate you coming by. Everyone go to Luke's Lobster. It's terrific. I don't know if you have anything specific you want to leave folks with. I just say our mantra at this point, we didn't have a mantra when we started because we were too busy. But our mantra now is know your seafood. And it's 
it's what we think sets us apart. It's that, it's that connection to our lobstermen, to the environment where they fish, to knowing how they think what's important to them, all the way through the, the guys who truck that lobster to our plant, to the, the teammates who serve it, to, to the guests. And Know Your Lobster is about knowing all those steps of, of everything that's, that's sort of beneath the tip of the iceberg in the restaurant and hopefully getting to a place over we're 10 years in, hopefully 10 years from now, we can say our guests know much more about the seafood that they eat and they bring that philosophy of know your seafood to, to their other restaurant experiences and their home cooking experiences. And, and again, together, we grow towards a place where everybody knows more about what it took to get their food uh, from where it started to, to their place. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This is awesome.